folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Montreal, this is The Korea File, a monthly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, the Koreas have agreed to high-level diplomatic talks beginning on Monday, January 9th, so this episode has become a textbook case of podcast content being outpaced by events. Inter-Korean engagement is really good news, though. In this conversation with photojournalist Jules Tomi, we discuss how the upcoming Pyeongchang Olympic Games, combined with incredibly chaotic leadership out of Washington, is creating a perfect confluence of factors that could lead to an easing of tension on the peninsula. This conversation was recorded on January 4th at the outset of the surprising events of the last few days. And what initiated your interest in Korea? Um, when did you decide to make the peninsula mm-hmm. the focus of your academic work? Well, I, I very much uh, came to be interested in Korea through cinema, actually. Um, as you said, they have a fantastic cinema, one of the most uh, uh, dynamic foreign cinemas we know of. And I just started watching movies, and I kept on watching movies, and 
at first I was really into movies that had a strong historical background, and then I got into Korean history, Korean politics, I started to read literature, and and then I wanted to learn a new language, so I thought, why not Korean? And then I started thinking about taking a trip to Korea eventually. That was back in 2013, and I ended up only going three years later. Uh, and so when I went to McGill, I knew that there were... Uh, courses in Korean language, so I thought, gotta take it. And then when I also found out about uh, what Michelle Cho was doing and the fact that uh, most, if not all, Korean studies courses here were about cinema, I thought, well, that sounds like a match made in heaven, doesn't it? And um, and so through her courses, I started reading a lot of things, and that's how I uh, came across uh, Chang Kyung Sup's work. Right, and Chung Kyung Sup's South Korea Under Compressed Modernity exactly. sounds really interesting. So uh, unpack that book a little for us. What's that about? Yeah, so I first encountered that sentence in, I think, the first article he ever wrote on the subject, which deals with um, patterns of familial change uh, in compressed modernity. So compressed modernity, according to... He, he, de- he describes compressed modernity as a civilizational state in the sense that um, to characterize the rapid uh, and, and, and incredible economic and industrial development of South Korea in the past 50 years in the sense that South Korea did in 50 years what the West did in 200 or so years. And what often com- what comes out of his work is that while uh, South Korea can be considered modern, as we uh, as we would say in the West in economic terms, often in social terms or uh, political terms, it is not really what uh, we would call modern from our Western point of view. And so uh, the book that I mentioned, South Korea Under Compressed Modernity, I think the subtitle of the book is uh, familial modernity and its discontent, something like that. And it deals basically with changes in uh, patterns of family relations uh, through the framework of compressed modernity. And it deals, among other things, with the fact that for a long time there was no welfare state in South Korea because uh, they, re- they, they relied on the, the Confucian family, basically, to provide welfare. And uh, conservative politicians, until very recent times, uh, until the IMF crisis, actually, um, never really considered implementing a welfare state because there was that uh, familial institution. And the IMF crisis actually coincides with sort of a next phase in Korea's Mm -hmm. development. Chris Marker is a photographer, a travelogue writer. I'm not... He's uh, so he's he was French. He was he's mostly known as a filmmaker. How but do you pronounce his name? Chris Marker. Okay, but th- that's not his real name. It's, okay. Uh, it's oh, an artist. Another book that you found influential was his Korean. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. tell me about that. So as I said, he's mostly known as a filmmaker, uh, but he wrote a lot. He took a lot of uh, pictures, and so Korean is basically a, a travel book. Uh, he went to North Korea, I think it was in uh, 60, no, uh, 56, or like in the last few years of the 50s, so right after the Korean War, when uh, North Korea tended to recover quicker mm-hmm. than South Korea from the war and was more economically booming. Uh, and it's basically photos of uh, 
of a half-reconstructed, half-destroyed North Korea, which isn't yet what we now know as a paranoid totalitarian state. And the um, and there's a, a write-up, basically, that uh, comes with the picture of text, a very uh, kind of obscure text that deals with his impressions of, uh, of what he saw there. Is this... Is this book, has this been republished in English? Is it well-known in, uh, in um, So it was published in French, obviously, and I think it was republished in Korea a few years ago with a Korean translation, and I think that someone at one point made uh, an English translation of the, the text, uh, someone on their own, which is available on the internet. Right. Um, but uh, I personally uh, found a book at the Bibliothèque et Archives Nationales du Québec, where it is available, but it's a, it's an incredibly rare book okay. nowadays. The yeah. National Library of Quebec does have a copy if you're listening yeah. to this podcast in Montreal. So this sounds fascinating, and what struck you about it um, in terms of photography and the work you do? I would say that it struck me in how it wasn't voyeuristic, on how uh, in how it wasn't trying to predict what would happen, to predict the fate of the newborn and reconstructing North Korean state, um, it struck me as a very um, nuanced and sensitive account of what North Korea was then. And I guess that it was it was easier then, perhaps, to, uh, to look at North Korea with a more neutral uh, approach because there has been so much propaganda since then uh, on the part of the Western media, I mean, and there has been abuse in North Korea. It's it's a country where terrible things are happening, no doubt, but there's also a lot of uh, things that circulate in Western media that tend to present things that as much worse than they are, I, I, I tend to believe. And so what is fascinating is that Chris Marker's account is not the least tainted by um, the sort of wariness that inevitably comes with any look at North Korea today. You were also influenced by Park Sung-jin's Chongyang-ni series. Mm -hmm. This is a photo series uh, presenting an examination of a rapidly changing red light district in the center of Seoul and the neighborhood that surrounds it. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this photographer is mostly known for his book Kids Nostalgia, who basically presents black and white portraits of uh, high school kids in Seoul from the early 2000 to the early 2010s. But on his website, uh, there is that Chongyangi series, which hasn't pub been published anywhere, as far as I know. And it's basically part street photography, and we'll talk about this later, the distinction that I don't necessarily make between photojournalism and street photography. So it's street photography, but it's also... I, I find it very... Uh, documentary in the sense that it basically it is showing you a neighborhood that is changing and that is gentrifying um, because I and I've been to Chongyangni and you can still find uh, the the alleys with the pink lights and the prostitutes but you can also find new malls and new things and it's it's disappearing but it's, it's still there at the same time. These works all informed the way that you approached the development of your project, 
Seoul, Seoul. Mm -hmm. uh, French pronunciation of Seoul is Seoul. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, this project uh, began in 2016 when you first visited South Korea uh, with the intention of documenting ordinary modernity and post-industrial melancholy. Mm -hmm. Did you find what you were looking for? Well, um, how to put it? It's more that I, the terms that you mentioned were not on my mind when I landed in Incheon. Uh, uh, on that uh, hot uh, June day in 2016. But as I started to walk the streets of Seoul and other cities like Busan, Guangzhou, I sort of came to realize that the, the background knowledge that I had been uh, dwelling into in the context of my studies here at McGill had an echo in what I was seeing. I, uh, For instance, uh, what what one thing that struck me is how you have absolutely modern neighborhoods and right beside them, uh, not exactly slums, but almost uh, neighborhoods that look like countryside towns, like almost in downtown Seoul. And, and so I thought there is something to document here. And what I saw was um, when I say ordinary modernity, uh, what I'm trying to do is move away from dis discourses about economic miracle, and present a less glamorous uh, face of Korea because even though it is the technological powerhouse that we know, even though it is a burgeoning democracy, as uh, the the protest again uh, against Pakne have uh, shown, there are uh, problems that we never hear about. We we rarely hear about the fact that uh, South Korea has one of the highest elder uh, old age poverty rates in the world. Uh, and that in part has to do with the decline of the traditional family and the fact that there still isn't a strong safety net for those people who find themselves not, take care, not taken care of by their children and not, or, and not taken care of by the state. And, and it's very common to see old people often in their 80s roaming the streets collecting cardboard boxes that they then try to sell, selling vegetables on the street. And I have a few photos uh, that depicts such uh, individuals and and that is really striking uh, as a foreigner because all you hear about South Korea is the is more or less the good things. You have a potentially upcoming project mm -hmm. tentatively titled 16 Days of Glory where you aim to incorporate photography and writing in a mm -hmm. series of portraits of ordinary Koreans in the run-up to the Pyeongchang Olympics. Yeah. You write that you intend for this project to be radically anti-journalistic in the sense that journalism and photojournalism is about donner du sens à la nouvelle or to give meaning to the new. And you say that current practices in journalism carry the imperative of mediation, implying asymmetrical relationships or power relations. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so... Um... Just like Seoul Siloin, uh, my new project, uh, 16 Days of Glory, 16 days because the Pyeongchang Olympics will last for 16 days, and of glory because the whole world will be looking at uh, the Korean Peninsula. And it's, it's, sort of an, of, it's sort of an ironic title because the things that I want to talk about in this project are not all glamorous and, you know, glorious in the end. And uh, radically anti-journalistic because I want to focus on the lives of, in a way, uninteresting people, you know, people like you and I who are just in the world and who uh, tend to be forgotten 
um, because as I said before, all that we hear about South Korea is economic miracles, uh, protests against, uh, against Park-Kunik, the Pakune government. And what I want to know is how people find themselves within all those big uh, social phenomenons and because um, you know com- compress modernity for instance it's nice to talk about it it's fancy to you know dwell into intellectual discussions but what interests me more is to see how those uh, things those problems materialize in the lives of people mm-hmm. and for instance uh, one of the persons that I interviewed is a 25 years old young man who's a musician who didn't go to college in a country which is crazy about um, post-secondary education, Who a, a guy who grew up with a single mother in a country in which it's still regarded as taboo, basically, to not have a father, to not um, have a traditional family. And uh, very often you find that um, what people tell you is not at all the same as what, for instance, sociological studies tell you, and obviously really different from what the media, especially the Western media, might tell you. Uh-huh. So trying to document lived experience. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. To put faces on uh, on social phenomena, mm-hmm. basically. You write that journalism shouldn't and can't remain merely voyeuristic. Mm-hmm. And you quote Teju Cole, a Nigerian-American writer and photographer, who argued that the more photographs shock, the more difficult it is for them to be pinned to their local context and the more easily they're indexed to our mental library of generic images. So tell me more about how you plan to move away from this kind of voyeurism in photography with the 16 Days of Glory project. So the point the the point in, in this quote is that from a Western perspective, all you tend to see in the media about the non-West is, you know, images of war, uh, children, miserable children with flies uh, on their faces, bloodbath, etc. And and not very often I find ordinary people who are just living lives like we are here and now, lives that are not all glamorous, not all tragic, just simple lives. And the reason why I want to tackle what I consider to be a problem in journalism is because I genuinely care about Korea for, for reasons that are not always clear to me. Uh, when I go there, I I somehow feel a little bit at home, and I care about the people that I met there. And and when I uh, turn on my TV and I hear uh, Radio Canada running a story about good manners, publicly in, funded uh, television in Quebec, yeah, French uh, language television, good manners and etiquette in South Korea, I I facepalm because I. I don't understand how we haven't yet in in this global age moved away from from such essentializing and um, dehumanizing ways of looking at uh, foreign worlds, mm. and and for and I find that very often uh, the stories that are ran in our Western media about foreign countries about what becomes in the end the non-West uh, a homogeneous block tend to comfort the, the reader or the listener into the, the preconceived ideas that they already have about those countries. And, and the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to confront them to 
people like them, you know, normal people, people who live through uh, the either tragic things or the or the either um, sweeping economic changes that we always hear about. And you say that uh, viewers might be tempted to categorize your work as street photography, mm -hmm. but you say that's where the critique that you're making about journalism lies. So what's the difference there between these two approaches to documentation? So uh, the type of photography that I'm pursuing with 16 Days of Glory is per very different from Seul Céloin, in that 16 Days of Glory basically uh, presents portraits. So re really standard black and white portraits of people and really not uh, photos of the street and of, you know, um, things like that. And the emphasis in 16, 16 Days of, of Glory is more on the, the write-up of, mm -hmm. of, of my discussions with those people. And um, that street photography comment often comes up uh, when people look at Seul Silouin in that it is, in fact, it's true, just pictures of people in the street without sometimes any context. And sometimes you'll just see... A, a, one of my most uh, liked pictures on Instagram is a picture of two nuns in a Seoul uh, subway station. And then people see that and they're like, oh, why is there, why are there uh, nuns on the, on the Seoul subway? And then, you know, you tell them, well, because Christianity is the most popular religion in South Korea, which most people don't know uh, in the West. And so my goal um, is not at all to um, impose my understanding of Korea or or to impose a reading of Korean people, but to make them make themselves ask questions. You know, why is this what it is? Why are you showing this? Why? And uh, you talked earlier about the. You quoted me when I said that uh, journalism implies a mediation, and what I'm trying to do ambitiously is to. Um, to try to come up with a journalism that is less about mediation or in a different way because um, very often journalism prescribes. It doesn't uh, satisfy itself with describing. It, uh, gives, it gives meaning to the news report, to, to what is shown to, to people. And um, what I want to do is present something that can be apprehended with in a more neutral way, in the sense that if you show my pictures to a South Korean, it will probably evoke very uh, precise things for them. You know, I, I have a picture of Southeast Asian immigrants in Ansan, and if you show that to a South Korean, they it might uh, refer to a lived experience for them, to an encounter with such people. But if you show the same picture to Western viewers, they might even think that those people are Korean. And so I'm interested in the unmediated familiarity that uh, people might or might not uh, feel from my pictures. And as I said, I will satisfy myself with uh, inducing very simple questions in the Western viewers, such as, uh, you know, why are there nuns on the Seoul subway? Many people, upon looking at my Seoul uh, Silouin series, told me that it was not journalistic enough that it was not descriptive enough, that it was merely street photography, that it was not telling anything. I think that it says a lot about the type of journalism that people are used to consuming. It says a lot about the way in which people are usually fed information. They, I, I, I think that we are used to journalists telling us this is how 
you should think about this issue. This is how you should think about what is going on in this place. And I think that people are not really used to being given room to think for themselves about the things that are presented to them about foreign countries. And, and, and that is basically, in my opinion, a sign that my work is doing what I intend for it to do. One of your goals is to put faces on social phenomena like you're speaking about and moving beyond political analysis and the discourse about economic miracles. But I'd like to just do a little bit of geopolitical Absolutely. analysis, if you don't mind. I loved becoming immediately depressed after going on Twitter the evening of January 2nd. Uh, we're living in what are obscene times. Uh, did you see what the American president tweeted uh, regarding a nuclear North Korea? I did. He yeah. has such a big button. <laughs> exactly. His button is huge. His button works. Evan Osnos, in a piece this week at The New Yorker, rightly calls this a schoolyard fantasy, as neither country's arsenal actually functions via a desk button. <laughs> but is that is that reassuring to you? Well... I will answer you with with what Koreans told me about what is happening because you know for me I feel like it's very abstract and but when you what's fascinating is that when you go to Korea and you talk to Koreans like I did last summer and you ask them about what's going on and if they're scared of a nuclear war the most common feeling I'll say is indifference they're so used to living in a country which is technically at war with its neighbor that it doesn't mean anything to them anymore. And even when you go to the DMZ, it feels so museumified, it feels so uh, stuck in time, that it's hard to fathom that there could be a war tomorrow. Um, and weirdly enough, most Koreans are not at all frightened. Uh, and they're just like, huh? You know, it's been going on for 50 years. Everyone notices that when we're in Korea, but yeah, from the outside, it feels a lot different. Going on, Osnos continues saying that from a legalistic perspective, there's been talk that the most immediate defense against an accidental nuclear exchange <laughs> might be found in Twitter's terms of service, since users have been suspended for much less than threatening a nuclear holocaust. Uh, but when asked if the American president had broken the rules, a Twitter spokesperson said unpersuasively that Trump's North Korea tweets do not amount to a specific threat and thus don't warrant disciplinary action. So this is obscene, but it's also so stupid. Any thoughts on the timeline that we're living through right now? Well, you know, uh, my hope right now is that Kim Jong-un and the North Korean uh, people who are in charge of that state are smarter than Trump. And I think that it takes smart leaders and also inevitably oppressive um, leaders to keep a communist state running in a capitalist world after the fall of the Eastern Bloc for more than what now, like almost 20 years. Interesting. So you're suggesting you think they're actually like canny operators? I think that they know what they're doing. I think that they have no... If... If they do care about the survival of their regime, they have no interest in going at war because they're alone against the world. And it was not the case during the Cold War because there was the Soviet Union, there was China. But even China is now, you know, uh, China is not really supporting them anymore. Kim Jong-un has not visited China yet. It seems mm -hmm. like that relationship is sort of on ice too. 
Huh, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, um, so to to summarize what I just said, I like to think that Kim Jong-un is smart enough to uh, not give in into Trump's blattering or blabbering or, you know. The leadership in Washington uh, appears to be hurrying the Koreas back to direct talks and even a possible DPRK Olympic delegation in Pyeongchang. And uh, on Monday, uh, in his New Year's Day address, Kim Jong-un opened up the idea of bilateral talks with South Korea. Then at 3.30 p.m. on Wednesday, uh, the hotline phone in Panmunjom, which is the uninhabited village on the DMZ, rang for the first time since February 2016 as the North called the South. We don't know much about what was talked about in the 20-minute conversation, but the South Korean Ministry of Unification said that the two sides checked technical issues of the hotline. Uh, two hours later, the North called back to say, let's call it a day, and then called again on Thursday morning. So it looks like this uh, communication uh, line is open again, which is a really positive thing especially after 22 months without communication. Yoon Young-chan, the South Korean presidential press secretary, said that the restoration of the communication channel means a lot and that he hopes it will lead to north-south contact continuing to be made on a regular basis. So my question is, are these the most hopeful time in years? Are they the most terrifying time in years? Or can these times be both things simultaneously? I think despite uh, the way... Uh, in which the American government has always weighted heavily on inter-Korean uh, relationships. I think that it certainly helps that uh, um, that Moon Jae-in uh, is the new president of South Korea because with Park Geun-hye, there was no opening at all. And now we have a government which I think Moon Jae-in uh, was a member of the Kim Dae-jung government which and Kim Dae-jung met with Kim Jong-il at the time and so there is an openness there, there is an inherent openness uh, on the part of the people who are now in power in South Korea and I think that that, that was bound to happen uh, regardless of what uh, the American leaders might or might not do I, I expected that following the election there would be a softening of uh, the inter-Korean relations which which is a good thing, but in, unfortunately, I I think that neither Koreas currently have anything to win from reunification, mm. as as tragic as this might sound. In the sense that, uh, my fear, my my belief is that in this world, reunification can only mean. Uh, a surrender on the part of the North Korean state to the South and the to, to South Korea's way of life, which in turn would uh, probably slow down the South's economy. But on the other hand, it would be a great thing to no longer have a threat level on the peninsula, which has existed forever. And I think that people who kind of dream big about what reunification would look like. Mm -hmm. Think about it in terms of like a kind of federalism yeah. and really kicking the can down the road decades or generations. So the key thing is just defuse the potential yeah. for mass uh, death in a war. Um, I'd argue that it's less about who wins and who loses and more about how in the long term it would be a win to have a sort of stable, settled peace mm -hmm. on the peninsula. What that looks like, I mean, nobody knows. Um, it was the 1988 Olympics with, that happened in Seoul that allowed space for 
the democratization movement to, I think, really take hold as the eyes of the world were on Korea. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see 30 years later that this could be maybe happening again, where this uh, this sort of mass sporting event can be the catalyst for something uh, unexpected. So when I talk about hope and being terrified at the same time, I, I was terrified in the second. I was suddenly finding weird uh, springs of hope uh, the 3rd and 4th of January of 2018, this new year. But one thing I'm not hopeful about is American media coverage of the crisis on the peninsula. It's awful, and I think it has a corrosive effect on any potential peace process. Uh, This is from the ending of a New York Times article regarding that hotline we spoke about. Analysts say that North Korea is trying to improve ties with South Korea to create a breach in Washington's campaign to enforce (laughs) maximum sanctions and keep up the pressure against the impoverished country. Who are these analysts? Why are they so suspicious? And why is the New York Times only citing these sources? What do you think? Well, I think that you're getting exactly at the heart of what I am trying to do in the sense that like you, when I read such articles, I feel defeated, you know? I feel defeated by the ways in which my country or countries uh, similar to mine talk about another country, which I deeply care about, in this case, Korea. And um, and this is exactly why I'm trying to do journalism differently. That's exactly why I'm trying to practice mediation differently. Because I think that we cannot keep on hammering the same... Uh, the same idea, the same suspiciousness uh, into the head of our uh, fellow citizens because that leads nowhere. Mm-hmm. That That is not uh, productive at all. Fortunately, there are rational, informed, academic voices as well. This analysis on the Kim Jong-un New Year's Day speech and the subsequent official North Korean government announcement is from Robert Carlin at the U.S. Korea Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. In a commentary published this week at 38north.org, a North Korea Watch website, he points out the following. First, the statement uh, was is not merely from a spokesperson of the Committee for the Peaceful Reunification of the Country, uh, the front organization in North Korea dealing with inter-Korean issues, but it was delivered by the chairman of that group in person. This level of engagement and the messenger shows that there's added weight to the message. The announcement was identified as the official stand of the DPRK, uh, delivered specifically under authorization of Kim Jong-un, Um, So there's no misunderstanding where this is uh, coming from. The North Korean leader has officially and publicly authorized engagement with the South. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a big deal. The announcement identifies South Korean President Moon Jae-in by name and his proper title. This is a sign of respect, but it's also signaling that Pyongyang is willing to deal with him specifically. The statement very specifically acknowledges in positive terms Moon's instructions at a state council meeting for relevant South Korean sectors to establish working level measures between the Koreas. Um, They could have put it less personally, they could have referred broadly, but by attributing it to President Moon, this further shows the image of Pyongyang being willing to deal directly with him. The announcement portrays Kim Jong-un as personally responding to Moon by giving an affirmative and high estimation and expressing welcome to the uh, uh, stand that President Moon Jae-in took. 
Implicitly, the announcement sets up a positive, nearly personal relationship between the highest authority of the two Koreas and underlines in a highly unusual way that Kim Jong-un is fully, personally committed to following through on this proposal with the South. All this came in his New Year's address. This is the interpretation of Robert Carlin at the U.S. Korea Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies. If this analysis is accurate, can we, what can we project? Well, as I, as I said earlier, um, for me it's not surprising that the current South Korean government uh, is showing openness because um, it has the people that are in power have the background that they have, uh, have, have been involved in such uh, processes uh, years ago. And so we can only hope for, um, for more opening and who knows, maybe a meeting again between the two leaders and and thank god that we have uh, academics who can come in and uh, bring nuance to the table of um, sensationalizing journalism mm. um, do you anticipate this historical moment should you be in korea documenting the lead up to the Pyeongchang games uh, do you see it playing out in your work for 16 days of glory um certainly in in the sense that you know i'm extremely interested in hearing what people have to say about what is going on. I'm, interest, I, I'm interested in finding out whether or not they care, uh, whether or not they think it's going to have sooner or later an impact on their lives. Because what I found when talking to many Koreans is that um, they, they basically just go on living their lives and, and they think of their country as stable. In lights of uh, recent developments and, you know, Trump's uh, repeated and repeated uh, provocations, I, I would love to think, uh, I would love to find out whether or not people in South Korea are getting either anxious, either uh, worried, or are still, you know, um, more or less feeling detached from what is going on at the political level, basically. Jules Tomi is a photojournalist, a writer, and is finishing his studies at McGill University in Montreal. You can find his work at JulesTomi.com and on Instagram with the handle JulesTomi. Jules, thanks for speaking with The Korea File. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's the Korea file for this month. If you can afford to help out the show financially with a few dollars, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile to become a monthly patron of this podcast. It's the support of listeners like you that will help the Korea file expand into a bi-weekly show. Music on this episode is Kim Gwan Suk with Buchiji Anhun Pyongji number one, Gude Jalgara. You can subscribe to the Korea file on iTunes and Stitcher or find us at koreafm.net and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find the Korea file there too and follow me on Twitter at Andre Margoulet. Thanks again to Jules Tomi for speaking with me. Stay tuned for February's episode, a conversation with blogger and online thought leader Ask a Korean on the origins of South Korea's alt-right. Until then, I'm Andre Goulet. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.